one for taking constructive criticism. And uh, last time out, my dad gave me very good advice, which is he said, Sai, it's probably a good idea for you to actually introduce yourself next time you get up the front for newcomers to suddenly see a guy with no arms standing there. It's a bit overwhelming for some people. Um, so my name is Josiah. Um, I'm a member here at Willow, um, and I have been my entire life. Um, I was here as a child. And actually, that starts with that, is that when I was a kid, I loved the idea of this passage. I remember that my cousin and my cousin Jack and my brother-in-law Cameron uh, had this passage as their theme for the year in year four at school. And I think as kids, this passage is just so catchy because of its visual appeal. You know, when we are depicted as soldiers of God, we immediately feel really cool. Yeah, I'm a soldier for God. I've got my helmet, I've got my breastplate, I've got my AK-47 because that's way more effective in this day and age than a sword. Yeah, I'm really cool. In all honesty, I, I can't recall hearing a message ever preached on this passage, perhaps because it is so colourful and visually appealing. There we go, I can hear my voice suddenly. We assume we understand it already. Yeah, yeah, we get it, Josiah. We're soldiers of God. However, I believe that there are a couple of misconceptions that are developing in our society today because we're not truly understanding what is meant by spiritual warfare. First, we can see the Christian life as an exit from the warfare rather than an entrance into it. I've heard this quite a bit in wishy-washy churches where health and wealth are proclaimed. It's the idea that Christ's death and resurrection somehow created this force field around us that protects us from all sin and evil. You hear people say things like, well, if you're truly a Christian and you have faith, well, then nothing can trouble you. Life is smooth sailing and wonderful. You are whisked away from the battlefield. And if you are suffering, then what are you doing wrong? And second, we can see the Christian life as the slogan, let go and let God. This view doesn't deny that there is a spiritual war raging, but it insists that it is a foregone conclusion. The problem here is that it makes us think that there really is nothing much that a Christian needs to do. You have your entrance to heaven's gates ticket. That's about all you need. Just make sure you don't do the really dodgy stuff. Repeat the phrase, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, every morning and night, and hey, presto, you're good. Now, it's not that I'm saying that these two interpretations are completely wrong. There is an element of truth in both of them. Yes, it is true that Christ has conquered death, and reconciled us with God so that eternity is guaranteed for us. And yes, God is sovereign over all things. However, if we think that the spiritual walk makes us immune to pain in this world, or that it's about us twiddling our thumbs just waiting for the return with little consequence for us, we are grossly misunderstanding what Paul is telling us in this passage of Ephesians. 
So today, this is what we're going to be looking at. First, we will see that there is a spiritual war raging beyond the walls of this building, and that our enemy is a fierce, dangerous, sinister, and very much real threat to any naive or inactive Christian. Second, we will unpack what it means to stand, as it says in verse 13, with the armor of God. And we'll see what this looks like in practice with a really great Old Testament example. And finally, it wouldn't be a true sermon on the armor of God if we didn't unpack each element of the armor itself listed in verse 14 to 17. So we will do exactly that. I've tried to keep everything as brief as possible, whilst also stressing the points that really ought to be made in this wonderful passage like this. So excuse me if I go a little longer than the allocated 20 minutes. So for now, pop a mentos, a butter menthol or a minty, and let's dive right in. To start, Paul refutes the misconceptions around spiritual warfare by painting a very clear picture in verses 10 and 11 about what it is. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. There is a spiritual war going on in this world today. And Paul is telling us that we have a very important role in this fight and that we must be ready. Now, in our church tradition, we emphasize God's omniscience, that is, his knowledge of all things. We emphasize his omnipotence, his power over all things, and his omnipresence, that is, he is everywhere all the time. In short, God is sovereign over all things, and everything turns out the way that he intended for us to grow in our understanding and love for him. But that being said, when Adam and Eve were being tempted in the Garden of Eden by the serpent, did he intervene? Did he shield them from the evil that he knew was lurking in their midst? You know, karate chopped the fruit from Eve's hand. Whoa, stop! Surely he knew the devil was there. But no, he didn't intervene because he made humanity with the capacity to make choices. So we can't just be robots who raise our hands and say, well, no spiritual fight for me, not my business, because it is our business, because we all make choices in life. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The world we live in isn't perfect just because Jesus died on the cross and conquered death. The reality is that sin still reigns here on earth, temporarily, of course. But that is the thing that makes the devil all the more desperate to crush any light of hope that he can. Verse 13, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, Paul isn't saying here that physical struggles don't exist. 
Of course we have those. Sickness, famine, floods, as we learnt in West Papua. These are very real. But the problem with our world is that it sees the world purely from a materialistic lens. That is that whatever I can see with my eyes and touch and hear, that is what is real. And then anything spiritual, oh, that's just a fabrication. It's just a story. They literally depict the devil as a guy in a red suit with horns, a long tail, and a trident as a mockery. Instead of focusing on the threat of sin and the devil, they focus on causes, poverty, trafficking, addictions, slavery, climate change is the big one. I can't believe how many Christians come up to me going, what is the obsession with the world on climate change? Well, if you take the idea of the spiritual realm out of it and the idea that we're living in sin, well, the climate is a pretty big deal. And so that's why they obsess over it. And these are all noble causes for us to take a stand against, for sure. We are called to be custodians of this world. And if it wasn't for us sponsoring, I think we sponsor International Justice Mission for a reason, to combat slavery. But let's face it. If there was no spiritual element here, we would have ended these things ages ago. In fact, in the 1800s, there was a really strong Christian revival movement that swept across Britain, and it led to them abolishing slavery across the entirety of the British Empire, which was most of the known world at that time. Now, did they do this because the men and women at the time just had this natural vibe or feeling that of empathy inside them that evolved, that they were like, yeah, we shouldn't be working people to death. No, it's because Christ's example and the word of God convicted them and they acted in kind. So fast forward to today and there are way more slaves in the world than there have ever been in the world in its history. Why? Because the enemy we face is spiritual. He is sinister and he corrupts the minds and hearts of men and women. He seeks and destroys. And we, brothers and sisters, are his number one targets. How do I know this? Because we shine like candles in the night with the glow of hope that comes from the Holy Spirit. And the devil loathes us. He vehemently resents hope. You think he's a friend. He tempts us. Yeah, I'm your friend. He hates us. And that is why Paul reiterates multiple times in verse 13 there that we are up against it in this world. And now before going on, we must be careful not to over-exaggerate the devil's power. After all, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not omnipotent. He's not as powerful as the Lord. And he is certainly not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. And Paul provides an interesting list in verse 13 of different levels there. He provides rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil. Now, some commentators have said that this list describes the hierarchy of evil. It's like an army of evil. But I think Paul means something a little bit different here. You see, 
we know that there are places in the world today where evil is particularly prevalent. There are places where there is truly the demonic. These are the places where the devil rules, for lack of a better word. People do some particularly dodgy, shady things. And it's not even that far from us. Taking a stroll through Carousel, I've passed those incense-burning stores. I don't know if you've seen them. Uh, and now some people have said to me, some fellow Christians, they've said, I just don't understand those stores. There's such strong smells, you know. I just, it's so overpowering. And, you know, that's why I tend to avoid them, because it's just so toxic, you know. It's like, Phew. But that's what the world says. They take it at face value. In actual fact, these stores are actually selling and promoting Eastern mysticism, which is dark spiritual stuff. All trimmed up, of course, to sound nice and inspirational and beautiful, just like the devil. You see, the real reason why we feel uncomfortable around these stores is because the Holy Spirit is speaking into our hearts when we're around them, saying something is very much not right here, and not right about this place. Leave this den of evil now. After all, if the Holy Spirit is all good, other spiritual stuff, it can't be good. And it's not just physical places. I think Netflix and other streaming services, there's a lot of rubbish on there. Facebook and Instagram, you can flick through and a lot of dodgy things come up. And of course, we have a choice of whether we leave or stay on these sites or in these places. And yes, I definitely believe that God's Spirit is enough to sustain and protect us from the evil one. However, what Paul is warning us in these verses is that we must, is that spiritual forces are at play wherever we go. We can't be naive in thinking that that's not the reality. Therefore, we must be ready and aware that we are up against an invisible enemy who seeks to destroy every vestige of hope and good. And that includes those in Christ. So spiritual war is a real thing that is happening around us. We have the Holy Spirit as an assurance, but that does not mean the dark work of the evil one won't try to pry us away when we least suspect it. And this brings us to our second point this morning, which is detailed in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now, when I first read this, I was amazed by that first point, that we are putting on the actual armor of God. That is God's own armor. And I think Paul is actually using Isaiah 59 verse 17 as a reference point here when he makes this bold claim. Bearing in mind Isaiah is chronologically before, Paul would have read this. Because it says, He, that is God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. God's armor is perfect. It can sustain all attacks from even the most formidable enemy. Paul is telling us to choose to wear this armor so that we can become formidable ourselves. 
Because without this armor, we wear only our basic human instinct, and that makes us incredibly vulnerable. So we need the armor of God to stand when trouble comes our way. And I like how Paul uses words to make this point, because he doesn't say, if the day of evil comes. He says, when the day of evil comes. Uh, There's a big difference there. When means it's an inevitability. You can't hide from it. If you stick your head in the sand or block your ears and make annoying noises to drown it out, that won't work. All of us must make a stand and face our battles against the evil one in our lives. And the only way we're going to safely get through each battle is wearing the armor of God. I think a great example for us to encourage us in this is David, particularly in his battle with the Philistines in the form of Goliath in the Bible. Now, most of us will nod our heads and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we know this story already. We learned it at kids at church. It's a basic one. But I'm just going to read an excerpt of this account now because I feel with what we have just discussed in mind, we will see very clearly how David put on God's armor on that day. And perhaps it will increase our understanding and wonder at what was actually happening during this event. From 1 Samuel 17, verse 41 to 47. The Philistine, that is Goliath, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. Hmm, sounds a bit like the devil looking at Christians. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you the flesh, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the world we know, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here, including the Israelites, will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Even the Israelites at this point were chickens. Oh, we can't beat this guy. He's scary. He's got a spear literally thicker than my leg, which is quite terrifying, actually, to be honest. But David knows better. King Saul begs David to wear his own armor. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, you don't stand a chance as it is. Do you have a death wish? But David has armor on. To paraphrase his speech at the end there, he says, I wear the armor of God, and it will sustain me. I will persevere in his name. And David killed Goliath, or as we can say from a spiritual point of view, the Lord defeated the devil. 
So when trials, temptations, and uncontrollable events happen in life, when the evil one comes for us, let us remember to put on the armor of God and stand tall in the knowledge that he is enough for us to withstand all of the devil's attacks. Now, as promised, it wouldn't be a true armor of God sermon without talking about the pieces of armor individually, which is probably what we're all most looking forward to, to be honest. So let's do this now to round out the message. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt represents the doctrine and truth that we hold to be true in our hearts. You can't be a true believer if you don't have an assurance of what you believe in. It's like these shorts that I'm wearing this morning. Now, I don't wear belts because I can't get my shorts up otherwise, and I trust purely in the elasticity of the shorts in these pants alone. So uh, in the last couple of sermons, with this mic pack in my pocket, it's actually quite heavy. As I've been preaching, I've slowly felt my shorts sliding downwards, which is a pretty nervy thing when you've got no arms because you can't just hook them back up. So uh, it's a real trust exercise. But I trust that they will not fall down because they have not failed me thus far. Uh, there's a first time for everything, of course, but I'm asking the Lord to spare me that humiliation. But this is the same trust that we must have in our doctrine, the belt of truth. If you are unwilling or incapable of having a serious conversation about faith in confidence of what you believe in, then what makes you think that you'll be able to do it when deception and temptations come your way? We need to be assured of the basic convictions, grace alone, scripture alone, whatever it is that we believe in. We need to be assured of what it is and hold it tight. Next, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Righteousness, as I discussed briefly in my last sermon, is both imputed, that means it is given and assumed, and expected. What does a breastplate cover? It covers your heart. For his death and resurrection... Christ covers over all our sins and makes us righteous. We actually see some imagery of this in Zechariah 3, uh, where Joshua the high priest is given clean garments in place of his dirty, sinful ones. However, in verse 17, we also see in that part of the passage in Zechariah 3, that this gift comes with an expectation. He is told to live in holiness henceforth in light of this gift. As such, righteousness is also a decision. We must choose to live holy and righteous lives, not just because God said so, but because we are actively guarding our hearts like a breastplate from the evil one in the process. In sum, as John Bilsma drilled in my head during midweek, it can be summarized in two words, trust and obey. It's also a banger of an old hymn if anyone's interested. And if you did sing it all the time, that's me showing my age. The next piece though is a bit trickier. It says there in the verse, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
Now, if you thought all this time that the boots were about peace, yeah, the boots of peace, the boots of peace. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to point you to our resident English teachers so they can teach you about sentence structure. Because the boots or sandals are not about peace, but about readiness. In Judges 7, uh, Gideon assembles an army of 32,000 soldiers to fight a far superior force. And God proceeds through a couple of events to whittle them down to about 300 in the end. Um, Because they're the only ones who are willing to fight for the Lord. Um, As a fun fact, because I love doing that, there's actually a part of that where God gets some of them, uh, one of the ways he whittles them down is that most of the the soldiers bend down on their knees and they scoop the water and sort of drink it like that, like I guess like a lion or something. And others bend the knee and cup it with their hands and lap like a dog. Now, if you're anything like me, I was like, what is the point of that? What is he actually testing? Well, it's actually quite smart because what God was saying is that those who were bending down on their knees and putting their head in the water would remove their helmet and throw off their shield. They were not ready for a fight, whereas those who knelt on their knee and cupped with their hand and lapped, they had the shield fastened. And if a battle was to suddenly come, they could grab their sword, swing, ready to fight. It's quite smart. It's really cool. I love the Bible. But Peter, who himself denied Jesus three times before he died, he also tells us in his letter, the first letter, chapter 3, verse 15, to be prepared always to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. We must be ready with answers for when we are tried and tested. Again, it is no use being one of those people that says, oh, I'm just not confident. I don't know what to say. I can't do it. I don't do that sort of thing. I don't have any answers. What do you think is going to happen? Do you expect non-believers and deceivers to just come up to you and go, oh, oh, sorry, no worries. That's not a problem. Because you've fob- in fact, because you fobbed off my questions or gave me vague answers like, oh, I don't really know, I actually feel convicted of what you believe in. I'm going to explore this Christianity thing. No, the belts, uh, the, the boots of readiness are about this. We need to prepare answers. We need to get ready. We need to find a way. Verse 16, in addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, I did have slides for this and I had a photo up, but I was a bit lazy and I only finished it yesterday, so I didn't give enough time to get them up. But there's a photo I had of a thing called a Roman testudo formation or a tortoise formation. And it was a very popular army tactic that they would do. It's basically the one where they had all the shields locked together and those above them, so it just looked like an armoured plating. Um, And it was a staple tactic used in their armies um, as a defensive manoeuvre that allowed their soldiers to get up and close to their enemies with minimal casualties along the way. And this is the point of reference that we must make about the shield of faith, because this is exactly what Paul has in mind when he's referring to shields, because, of course, he is in Rome. 
The shield wall is an intimidating display. So how much more so is it intimidating to the evil one when multitudes of Christians, brothers and sisters, gather to share their faith and rejoice in their Savior together? Alone with a large shield of faith, we can last a while, but with others, we are a force to be reckoned with. The fact is our faith strengthens in the company of others. Therefore, make an effort to share your faith and challenges with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's raise a mighty wall of faith, congregation. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 8, Paul speaks of this again, and he refers to it there as the hope of salvation as a helmet. Battle in these days was a confusing ordeal. Soldiers didn't have those digital compasses or things to point them in the right direction. Heck, when there's a few inches between you and another guy and a sharp sword in your hand, you've got to be pretty quick of mind to work out if he's an ally or an enemy. And this is what is meant by the helmet of salvation. It's the mind. The hope of salvation is a map marker that shows us, that points the way to how we are to live. It is the goal in the midst of battle, what we are looking forward to, the hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. If you are directionless, be wary, because Satan and his cronies are not going to hesitate for a moment in leading you down a twisted, dark path. So, so far, each element of armor has been defensive in nature to counter the works of the devil. We have the breastplate of righteousness to counter the devil's accusations that we are not worthy of grace. We have the boots of readiness to counter the serpent striking at our heels and causing us to stumble. Our shield of faith are our convictions that block out temptation that comes our way. And the helmet of salvation thwarts deception and the craftiness of the evil one. But it's not enough to just play on the defensive. In the book, Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher, which I've plugged a couple of times, he interviews a bunch of ex-Soviets or from communist Russia about life under a regime based on a lie. And the point of the book is this, that we're actually living in a world of lies today. Here in Australia and across the world, there is this new obsession with the idea of truth-telling. You know, your truth is your truth and mine is mine and let's all get on with each other. So isn't that ironic that the one truth that the Western world is squashing and seeking to eradicate is the ultimate truth, the truth? I tell you all this morning, this is not an accident or an irony. This is plain and simply the devil's work. And it is exactly why we must hold aloft the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word, as it is written there in verse 17, is translated in Greek to mean uh, to be rhema or rhema, um, which means a saying. 
So therefore, the sword of the Spirit is the memorization of sayings or Scripture. And Jesus demonstrated the power of this in Matthew 4, which I think is just what we need in a time like this, a great role model. Because there, Satan tempts Jesus three times. On one occasion, Satan himself quotes Scripture. What? Yeah. But Jesus is quick to quote Deuteronomy back at him to show how the crafty snake was actually twisting the meaning of the word. And here's the point. You don't need to be a master of apologetics to take the fight against unbelievers. The word of God, scripture, is literally all you need. And I'm gonna close this morning with a story about the profound power of the word of God as demonstrated by uh, Dr. Harry Ironside. A socialist rose to challenge Harry in San Francisco to a debate titled Agnosticism versus Christianity uh, one day while he was attending a Salvation Army meeting. There's a few words there. A socialist is basically uh, like a communist who focuses on economics, but they believe in society. So basically our world in Australia today um, is full of socialists. And agnostics, well, they believe that, well, maybe God exists, but he has nothing to do in the world. He doesn't care about the world. And so he challenged him to a debate, and he said, you need to prove that Christianity is better than agnosticism. And he replied to the challenge with this, and I'm going to quote this from my Bible commentary. It's quite a long quote, so bear with it, but it's really solid stuff. He said, I'll be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions, namely, that in order to prove that you have something worth debating about, you will promise to bring two people whose qualifications I will give in a moment as proof that agnosticism is of real value in changing human lives and building true character. First, you must promise to bring one man who was for years what we commonly call a down and outer, a man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself but who on some occasion entered one of your meetings and heard your glorification of agnosticism and your denunciations of the Bible and Christianity and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address was so deeply stirred that he went away from the meeting saying, henceforth, I am an agnostic. And as a result of this, imbibing that particular philosophy or that viewpoint, he found that a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hates. And righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life. He is now an entirely new man, a credit to himself and an asset to society, all because he is an agnostic. And secondly, I would like you to promise to bring a one woman, once a poor, wrecked, characterless outcast, the slave of evil passions and the victim of man's corrupt living, but who also entered a hall where you were loudly proclaiming your agnosticism and ridiculing the message of the Holy Scriptures. As she listened, hope was born in her heart, and she said, this is just what I need to deliver me from the slavery of sin. She followed the teaching and became an intelligent agnostic, whatever that means, or infidel. 
and as a result, her whole being revolted against the degradation of the life she had been living. She fled from the den of iniquity where she had been held captive so long. And today, rehabilitated, she has won her way back to an honored place in society and is living a clean, virtuous, happy life, all because she is an agnostic. Here is the crunch. Now, if you will promise to bring these two people as examples of what agnosticism can do, I will promise to meet you, and I will bring with me at the very least 100 men and women who for years lived in such sinful degradation as I have tried to depict, but who have been gloriously saved through believing the gospel which you ridicule. I will have these men and women on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ and as present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. And what happened after that was the man waved and smirked and quickly disappeared into the crowd. Um, the power of the word is immeasurable. There is nothing that can, can transform humanity, humans, like the word of God. And congregation, we do not need to justify the truth of the Bible. Prove that it's legitimate, it's true. Look, look, proving the veracity of it. Oh, it's good that there's people that do that. But we don't need to do that. The Bible justifies itself. And it justifies us. This is the power of the Word of God. So though there is a spiritual war raging, and the enemy is fierce, we have the armor of God Himself. Therefore, let us put on this suit of armor, and stand firm in the truth of his word and in the knowledge that it is sufficient for all of our battles. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which we could read and be encouraged by this morning. In particular, we give thanks for your armor, which you have given us strong enough to withstand any attack from the evil one. We ask that your word would arm us with all the tools and strength that we need to stand for you. Convict our hearts of your truth. Give us the answers that we need for when questions arise. And help us set our minds on Christ and the hope of eternity that is to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.